0: Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good.
1: All right. Well, we're a couple weeks into our series on the book of Daniel. And as you could hear, those three men, their names referenced over and over. This is a story that's going to get us to Shadrach, Meshach. And Abednego uh, may be unfamiliar to you, but in reality, um, this is one of the most beautiful and compelling stories in the entire Old Testament, I would say, of course, even in the larger story of Scripture itself, uh, right here taken from Daniel chapter three. So I'm going to get right to it. Three movements today, if you're a note taker. Number one, we're going to look at the theme of conviction, some of the things that take place in these men's lives as they stand before the king and they say, take our lives, if you will we will not compromise our faith. So we're gonna look at conviction number two, clarity of faith. Sometimes we're confused. What's going on? Why am I here? What am I really committing myself to? So you see immense clarity in these men's lives. And then we're gonna look at and finish with the movement of closeness, a God with them in the furnace. And so conviction, clarity, and closeness. So under point one. Bless his heart, Nebuchadnezzar does not begin the chapter very well, he does not end the chapter very well. We're going to look specifically at Nebuchadnezzar like we did in chapter 2 last week with Chris and his teaching, but chapter 2 ended with some dreams, and Daniel is the interpreter of those dreams. Of course, the giftedness for the interpretation comes from God himself, but there is this dream setting, and what the dream is about in Daniel chapter 2, if you were not with us, it's the reality that. Nebuchadnezzar's reign and rule is going to have a termination point. That there are other kings and kingdoms that are going to follow him. Nobody could interpret this dream. He demands uh, the interpreter to come and actually say, what was the dream without being told and then give the interpretation. Daniel is the only one who is gifted to be able to do that by the Spirit's presence in his life. He interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He gets it right. And then, of course, at the end of that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar kind of praises Daniel's God as the revealer of mysteries. Now, this is respect for Daniel's God, but it's not yet belief. You're gonna kind of see that worked out over the next couple of chapters. And here then in Daniel chapter 3, it would seem that the events of Daniel uh, right here are an emotional reaction to this king who is saying, I don't want my influence or my power to wane or to go away. And so he's kind of buckling down and he's choosing a new way of uniting his people. So he doubles down on the vision of his own kingdom. And what he does at the beginning of this chapter is he creates a monument of gold, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Looking at the ceiling, I would say at the apex, you're probably around 40 feet, something like that. So it's more than double the height of this room. 90 feet tall, covered in gold, 9 feet wide. He creates this monument, and he sets it up outside of the city of Babylon in what's called the Plains of Dura. And on the day of dedication, we are told, quote, that King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's the who's who of the ancient Near East. These are the people who are in control. I mean, this is Grammy night for us, so maybe it's Adele at Griffith Park, or it's it's like Burning Man meets Coachella is really what this is like. It's craziness on the plains of Dura. There are people everywhere. The who's who's there, probably hundreds of thousands, if not more people, are most likely being commanded to be a part of this day of dedication. And the text goes out of its way to tell us that there are people from various nations there, not just the Babylonians. There are people from various nations speaking different languages there for the dedication of the golden image. If you glance at verse 7, if you have a Bible or you have an app, this is what we're told. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, the Scotsmans thought that they were the ones who originated the bagpipe. It was the ancient Chaldeans. It was the Babylonians with the bagpipes, as we can tell. Every kind of music, the text tells us, and all the peoples, nations, and languages, fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. This is not a small event. This is not a local event. There are people from different provinces and nations and languages who are present right here. So what's going on? I mean, It's kind of simple in a sense that out of his egotism, out of his insecurity, and out of his narcissism, Nebuchadnezzar is shoring up personal and political and religious support by creating this 90-foot golden image and instructing the people and the nations to bow down and to worship it. And all of these people have come. All of them are beginning to bow down. But there were three that day, and I would say most likely only three. There were only three people at this dedication who did not bow down, and they are these three Jewish teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Imagine in a room of 200 people where everybody's bowing down. It would be awkward for there to be three guys right here not complying with what's going on. People would notice very quickly. There are a lot of people on the plain of Dura. Everybody's worshiping the golden image, bowing down to the Babylonian deities. But there are three men that day who say, not us. And it's simple. That's not our God. Right? That's not our God. We will not bow the knee. And so, pretty soon, the whispering begins. Hey, do you see the guys in the front? It's those three Jewish teenagers. Yeah, they're pretty successful guys, really intelligent, great reputation. What's going on? Why aren't they bowing down? We've got a lot of people who have been deported. Who knows what other people have chosen to bow down, but these three men are choosing not to. The whispering begins, the news gets to King Nebuchadnezzar's ear, and then. Nebuchadnezzar quickly has an audience with these men, and he says to them, in essence, it's fine for you to worship your God and to practice your faith and to value your traditions, but you're going to have to bow down to our gods too. See, and we've been talking about this since the beginning of this series because that is the heartbeat of pluralism. You are welcome to do whatever you want. Jesus Christ Amazing. Go for it. Go and worship your God in private. Go over to that church at 10 a.m. and do your thing. But when you come into public, you need to be able to say, Jesus is on the sidelines. He's in the background of my life, but he's not public. And I'm not going to bring my faith in Jesus Christ into this sector and into this sphere. You have to bow down to the other gods. That's the conversation that Nebuchadnezzar has with these men when he begins to question them, and that, in essence, is the heartbeat of pluralism. As Tim Keller has put it, pluralism means that you're welcome to bow down to your God privately, but publicly, you have to worship ours, right? Now, I want you to remember, chew on this, the animating principle of pluralism, the society that we live in, is the belief that there are multiple starting points for truth, multiple pathways into discovering reality. But none, according to pluralism, is better than the other. If you remain open-minded, if you remain tolerant, then you're going to be accepted, life will be fine. But if you narrow it, then we're going to have a problem. And that's what you see. You see this problem beginning to emerge. Three men refused to bow down to the gods of the day, and now they're having a conversation with the king of that day. Now imagine this 90 foot golden, probably obelisk, probably looks a little bit like the Washington Monument of that shape and size. And there's this equation of the Babylonian gods with this idol, right? And so they're kind of coming down, they're bowing before this this huge monument. But at the center of it, of course, even if we don't understand all the nuance and how many gods are connected and all the Babylonian religions, what you can understand is that the center of the story is clearly idolatry. And an idol is any good thing that emerges in your life as an ultimate thing. It's an easy definition of idolatry. It's a good thing that you put at the center of your life and all of a sudden it's become an ultimate thing. And idolatry, of course, is not just related to the plains of Dura. It's just as alive and well in the suburbs of San Diego. That's part of the connection between this story and our moment. Idolatry is soul service at the feet of something other than Jesus Christ. What's well, going to fill up your soul? You got to go in for a... For a um, A tune-up, what's gonna tune up your mind, your heart, your affections, your soul? Where do you go for that? The Christian says, I go to one place for that. Of course, there are other beautiful things around me. I have beautiful family. My wife and I are celebrating our 17th year anniversary yesterday, right? 17 years, we get to celebrate family. My wonderful, thank you, wonderful. I know I look 17, but that's all right. Okay, 17 years together. We celebrate things in life. That does fill up my soul, okay? Don't mishear me. Those are beautiful things and beautiful moments, and I'm very grateful for the good things God has given me, but that is not where my soul finds its ultimate anchor point. It has to be in the God who made me, and idolatry is choosing to take something that's pent-ultimate and making it ultimate, pa- taking something that should be second, third, and fourth on your list and saying, actually, I'm going to wake up today, and I'm going to make it number one. And that's, the, that's the, why you can't just say, oh, how foolish of those people to bow down before something so big and so strange and so unanimated. I do it, and so do you. And those things that we bow down to do not have souls, and they take yours. Right? That's what Christianity is trying to get us to see. Those things don't have souls. They don't have life, and they will take yours if you commit to it. See, but a Christian is someone who says, I will not give soul service, I will not bow my heart, I will not establish my sense of self-worth on anything other than Jesus Christ. A Christian is somebody who with resolve and conviction, with humility, I want to get to that in just a moment, says, I could easily give my heart away to other versions of reality. I feel the gravitational pull upon my life. There are other things that are pulling me in as a Jesus follower in this moment. It says, give your affection to this, to that, to him, to her, to that amount of money, to that sort of prestige, to that sort of power. Go and get those things. As a Christian, you are not immune to the gravitational pull of those forces on your life, but you begin to recognize them and verbalize them and see that while everybody else may be bowing down and not paying attention, you say, my affection, because this God has saved me, I will bow the knee only to him. You see this resolve and you see this conviction in their life. Now, for some of you, you're thinking about this word conviction. Conviction is not blind faith or naive conformity, but it is the resolve to see through the malaise of worldliness and the spirit of secularism that says you're welcome to be a Christian, just don't refuse to also bow down to our gods. Personal question, where do the pressures of pluralism attach in your life? Where does the spirit of compromise attack the convictions in your life? Where do you feel that compromise seeping in? Could it be with regards to money and how you view money, how you think about it? It could be about sexuality, pornography, power, unwillingness to forgive. There are all sorts of things that will attach to your convictions. You say, I want to be a faithful human being. Nobody's going to get to their deathbed and say, man, I'm so glad I wasn't faithful. Not just faithful to your spouse or to your children, but that I I really regret living with conviction. Nobody's ever going to say that. See, but a Christian is somebody who lives by truth but does so kindly and with love. We live in a moment where truth can hurt people if it's not done with immense amount of love. And there's a woman in a book by the name, uh, the book is called Compassion and Conviction. It's part of the AND campaign. And in the introduction to their book and their perspective on politics, a woman by the name of Barbara Williams Skinner writes this. She says, exercising faith in these challenging times takes Courage. Although Christians are still called to speak truth in an increasingly corrupt world, we must hold fast to God's declaration in Genesis 127 that every person is made in his image. And we can practice this truth in ways that will not diminish human dignity. Just as we have received God's immeasurable grace, we should be ready to extend grace to those we disagree with. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, it can be challenging to show kindness to those who hold a radically different worldview. Showing kindness means being able to unconditionally accept people for who they are without approving of their choices, even if we believe those choices are outside of God's will according to our understanding of God's word. The sermon is not necessarily about conviction with kindness, but let me just kind of throw that out to you. That's as an essential part of truth in the Christian worldview, right? That we do build on truth, but we do so with humility and kindness. We say God's word says this, and we believe it is the best way. It is the true way, but we will listen. We will adopt a posture of respect. We don't wanna hit people or hurt people with truth and drive people away from the church. It has happened far too often, but conviction of your beliefs matters, yeah? In a truth-confusion world, what we believe matters. All right. Conviction, part one. Clarity. Let's go to verse 15. Verse 15, "'But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace.'" Nebuchadnezzar is obviously speaking. And then he kind of mocks them. "'And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?' Highlight verse 17. We're going to camp there for a moment. Verse 17 essentially says this. Our God is able to save us. Okay, part one. He will deliver us. You see their confidence in the ability of God to save them. Our God can save us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, have no doubt, we're not bowing the knee to your gods. Incredible statement. Our God is able, he will deliver. But even if he doesn't, we're not going that direction, right? Listen, the last I checked, the God of the Bible is extremely capable. Anybody going to say amen? The God of the Bible is capable, He is powerful. He is alive. He has defeated the cross. He has defeated your sin. He's paid for all of it. He saves human beings. He's the one who has a soul. And if you follow him, your soul will come to life. The last I checked... The relationship that I have with this God is that he is alive. Doesn't mean that there are times where I wonder, God, where are you? That's part of the journey of being a disciple and a follower of Jesus. I don't always feel this robust connection to him, but the scriptures teach us your God is able, your God is a refuge, your God is a healer. I'm not worshiping some God who's impotent and sidelined. He's not a demigod. Don't worship a demigod. Worship the real deal. And the God of Christianity is the real deal. He's powerful and he's good. What other combination can you find where a God is powerful and good? He's merciful and he's for you, all right? This God is able. This is what they say, and I want you to believe that. Your God is powerful. Every other God doesn't even exist. There is no soul in them, and if you follow it, it will take yours. This God says, I'm the God of your soul. I am good. I'm for you. I'm powerful. I heal people. I'm still in the business of saving. I save souls. I died for them. He will deliver. I believe that the spirit of God gave these 3 men a God-given conviction at that moment. It is not something that always happens with every Christian who always suffers. You know that and I know that. God does not always deliver us from that fiery furnace in that moment. But I believe that the spirit of God inspired them to believe that, he was, that they were going to be delivered. Somehow, I don't think they thought they're gonna tumble into the fire. I think they're like, whoa, 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 we're wrong, right, when they go in in just a moment. But they believed that God was somehow going to deliver them. But even if he didn't, these young men would not bow down and they would not compromise their convictions to save their lives. Let me ask this question. Why is somebody a Christian, all right? Why is somebody a Christian? Why does someone choose to follow Christ? What's the answer to that? Before I actually answer that, I wanna ask a different but related question. Why did you, or if you're a young person thinking about the future, why did you choose a particular career path, what got behind that conviction and that decision? Now, just take an easy profession to talk about for a moment, Uh, a medical professional or a doctor. You say to somebody, why did you choose to become a doctor? You might hope that their reason is to say, Well, I noticed my gifts, I had them affirmed by other people, and I have a genuine desire to help and to heal other people along this journey called life. I want to be able to use my life and my giftedness and able to help other people get better. Wonderful. But what if you dug underneath and you actually saw that the reason for going into the medical profession was more about reputation, financial compensation? And whatever dream you wanted to live on your own, or if you're looking back over your shoulder going, actually, it's about the family pressures that they pushed me forward, I didn't get to choose. What about somebody who becomes a small business owner, an entrepreneur? Why did they become a a small business owner? What drives them in that direction? Well, you would hope that they would say, well, I wanna be able to create a product that can help people along the journey of life. I wanna create something real, meaningful, and helpful. But what if it's really because they want... More money, they want a bigger portfolio, and they don't want to work under the thumb of any other boss. They want to be their own boss. Maybe it's kind of a mixed bag of motivations. You can even go down into what it means to be a mother or father. Why does somebody want to become a mother or father? You hope it's because they simply want to pour their life into another human being, but maybe it's because there's all this difficulty of the past, and they want to kind of cover that over with their own family. We've got all sorts of reasons. That's my point. We've got all sorts of reasons for doing the things that we do. And some of those reasons are better than others. Some are right, and in fact, some might be wrong. And someone can claim to follow Jesus, but really they aren't in it for him. They are in it for other reasons. And it's easy to consciously or subconsciously add contingencies to your faith in Christ. I'll follow Jesus if I remain happy. How many of you have thought through that? Jesus, you gotta make me happy. I need to feel a certain way. I'll follow you, Jesus, if it's easy. I've had many conversations with young professionals talking about I don't feel anything. He's supposed to be doing something in my life. Are you following him? Are you reading your scripture? Are you praying? No, no. It's supposed to be easy, right? I'll follow you, Jesus. If it remains easy, if you don't ask too much of me, if you give me what I want, if you give it to me when I want it, the conditions have to be met. Now consider someone who begins following Jesus with the assumption that Jesus is going to smooth over all of the bumps in their road. Look, Jesus, I've been faithful, so why didn't I get the promotion? Why am I still waiting? Why is this relationship in breakdown mode? Why did I get sick? Why haven't you answered my prayer? If we react with rage or entitlement or accusation, it's very possible that wasn't God we wanted. It was something that we wanted from him and that actually has become God itself. It's become the bigger thing in our life. It's become our heart's desire. Imagine for a moment a young man and a young lady, they get married, they're young, they're in love. 17 years ago, I can picture them like it was yesterday. All right, young man falls in love with a young woman, she's very successful. She has a huge intellect. She's really gifted. She comes from a great pedigree. This guy sees this young lady. He's in love with her. She goes to law school. Everybody's praising her for her abilities. One year out of law school, she makes a partner somewhere. She's making great money. She has a lot of social clout, and he is riding the train, and he's riding the wave. But somewhere in this story, things get derailed. She loses her job. All the social invitations are gone. But worst of all, in this story, she loses her husband's love. What happened in the story? The reality is that most likely he did not love her for her. He loved her for what she gave him. He loved her for him. And when that gets exposed for the first time, you have clarity What's this all about? Am I really in it for you, Jesus, or am I in it for myself? And what you see in these men's lives is they're not in it for self-preservation. They're not in it for reputation. They're not in it for a promotion. They're going, you're going to take all of that? I don't care. I'm not bowing the knee to your God and your King. This profound moment of distillation, right? There are no benefits. There are no contingencies, They go, we believe our God's powerful and he will deliver. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your God. They were there for God and for God alone. Let me wrap this part up by saying, notice that clarity for these men comes in community. You know that the invitation to the plains of Dura was sent out to all of these kind of elite uh, government officials and different people, different leaders, different nations. These men each got the invitation. They said to each other, whoa, whoa, whoa. It says they're about to dedicate the 90-foot image. We're supposed to bow down. What are we going to do? You know what they said? We're going to stand together. I'm gonna help you refine your faith to understand what's going on. There's pressures of pluralism all around you. Let's stand together. Not one man over here, one man over there. Those three guys were sitting in the front row together. We're not bowing to your God. Distillation, clarity of conviction comes through beautiful community. Last part. Conviction, clarity, and closeness. The text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage at this conversation that he has with these men at their refusal to bow the knee to his gods. And in response, he has the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual, which I'm thinking is pretty hot. So hot, in fact, that the soldiers who were escorting these three men to the door and able to push them in when they open it, the text tells us that the, the flames are so hot that it kills those men. So you're thinking to yourself, this is a pretty intense moment, pretty intense situation. We don't know the detail, but it says that they're bound hand and foot. It seems like a really quick conversation. They didn't take off any of their robes. They just go in as they're dressed, tie them up. I'm very angry. Throw them in the fire. These guys perish because of the heat of the moment. And then these other fellas, these three, they tumble in. And they fall into the fiery furnace. But as the crowd watched to see these men burn in judgment, you no doubt the king brought a bunch of people to come and watch. If you refuse to follow the rules of Babylon, this is what will happen to you. As they're watching these men attempt to burn in judgment over defying the ways of the king, Nebuchadnezzar notices not just three men in the fire, but the text tells us a fourth and one that looks like, quote, a son of the gods. There was a fourth man in the fire with these three Jewish teenagers. Now, fire in the Bible often symbolizes trials and suffering. When we say something like this, this moment feels like a trial by fire. You're starting to get close to what the Bible symbolism of fire means. We're saying that the moment is painful. And it's hard. And as I noticed, as I mentioned before, notice that these guys are not spared from the fire, are they? Right? They go tumbling headlong into the fire. But the fire within the fire, there was this fourth man, one like a son of the gods. And most commentators believe that it was actually the Son of God Himself, that it was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who's come to be with these men in the fire. Suffering, part of what this text is telling us is that suffering for Christians and for non-Christians, is just part of life. It's part of the rhythms and it's inevitable. These men, of course, they stand condemned at the feet of this king and his wrath and his fury are flying at him. But because someone was willing to enter into the furnace with them, these men emerged unscathed and untouched. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, "'The king's counselors gathered together "'and saw that the fire had not had any power "'over the bodies of those men.'" The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I love that detail. That detail did not need to be included in this story. There wasn't a hint of smoke, not even some burned edges, not even a little crispy char on the edge of their hair, no eyelashes or eyebrows gone. Nothing had touched them. There was no scent of judgment There was not even a speck of condemnation upon these men. Here's how Romans 8, 1 would put it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because somebody has gone into the fire with me. What God's like that? What God is like that who's going to say, I'm going to be with you, but guess where we're headed? Into the furnace. I'm going to meet you there. And I'm actually going to embrace the fire for you. I'm going to go into the ultimate furnace for you so that when we go into your own smaller fires, all the different suffering, all the different temptations, all the different hard moments in your life, when you get to those spaces, you can know that I'm with you Because I've already absorbed the ultimate furnace for you. This is what the the cross is about. This is what Jesus has done. A fourth man who absorbs the fire so that when you go into it, you emerge on the other side without a scent of judgment, without any burns and scratches. But you have been blessed and brought forth, not from it, but through it. I will be with you even until the very end of the age is one of the most profound promises of the scripture. What other God is going to meet you there, save you, and heal you by being kind of torn up and consumed by the flames himself? I'm going to conclude with this story. It's by Brian Chappell, and he's a great teacher-preacher. And Brian Chapel tells a story of a Christian miner, not a young person, but somebody who kind of hits rocks with a big hammer, right? A Christian miner who was injured at a young age and became an invalid who spent his time watching through a window from his bed as life passed him by. And here's what he writes. This miner watched as men his own age prospered, raised families, and had grandchildren. As he watched, his body withered, his house crumbled, and his life wasted away. One day, when the bedridden miner was quite old, a younger man came to visit him. I hear that you believe in God and claim that he loves you. How can you believe such things after all that has happened to you Don't you sometimes doubt God's love? And the old man hesitated, and then he smiled. Yes, it is true. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down house of mine. He sits right there by my bed where you're sitting now. He points out my window to the men I once worked with and who are still strong and active, and he asks, does Jesus love you? Then Satan casts a jeering glance around my tattered room as he points to the fine homes of my friends across the street, and he asks again, does Jesus love you? And then at last, Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? And what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way, asked the young man. And the old miner said, I take Satan by the hand. I lead him in my mind to a hill far away called Calvary. And there I point to the thorn-tortured brow, to the nail-pierced hands and feet, and to the spear-wounded side. And then I say, and I say, Satan, you tell me, doesn't Jesus love me? Right? It's because he's been in the fire. It's because that's where he's going to meet you. He's going to go there so you can come out on the other side unscathed. Doesn't Jesus love me? All the accusations are going to fly. But the conviction and the resolve to remain faithful to our God despite the pressures of pluralism come when you see the gospel, right? When you see Jesus, when you understand that Jesus loves you. Doesn't Jesus love me? Yes, he does. And in that is what it's all about. Do you have clarity or do you have conviction? Do you want it? Can you see it over in other people's lives, but it's not yet attached to yours? Today can be a day where you say, I want to live with resolve because Jesus has died with resolve for me. I am not alone. My God is with me, and I wanna be with him, right? Do you want that? Because this size of a group of people could change things. Family dynamics, marriages, relationships to children, understanding of work and your purpose, when you lean into the fact that Jesus loves you, it can change things. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we're about to eat a meal, and we thank you that you invite us to the table. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are a God of relentless resolve. So many people in the Bible seem like hopeless cases. They seem like people who um, you'd never go after. But that's a surprise of grace, is that you don't go after the powerful, you don't go after great. You go after those who are weak, broken, and humble. You feed them. Or if we're too full, we can't be fed. If we have a life filled with good news, then the gospel will not mean much. If we run from suffering, we don't allow you to meet us in the furnace. I do you think we will miss a lot. So Lord God, I pray for a spirit of conviction to fall upon our church. Conviction means that we will understand our sin. We will understand the places that we have bowed the knee to not Jesus. We will understand that he died for those moments in our lives, that disposition and attitude of our heart, That Christ gave up his life so that he could enter into the furnaces of our lives with us, not condemning, but healing. So God, if we feel alone, if we have a stereotyped, caricatured understanding of who you really are, amaze us with the capability. Our God will save us. Our God is a deliverer. But even if he doesn't in this moment, I trust him. He's good.